and International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in International Development Studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewish. It was Valentine's Day not too long ago, and today we're here to ruin it. With Dr. Laura Parisi, who is the Chair and Associate Professor of the Department of Gender Studies, with a cross-appointment in the Department of Political Science at the University of Victoria in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. She's published in the areas of gender equality, political economy, human rights, and international development. Her current projects include an article entitled Canada's New Feminist International Assistance Policy, Business as Usual, which is forthcoming in Foreign Policy Analysis, and the co-authored forthcoming book, Gender, Power, and International Development, A Critical Approach, and that's with Paul Gray Press. She's also a very popular teacher in the Department of Gender Studies at the University of Victoria, and there's a very famous course and a series of lectures that she gives talking about diamonds, chocolate, and flowers, all things that are very important to Valentine's Day, and today, we're here to ruin it all. Hi, Laura. Hi. Thank you for inviting me. It's always a pleasure, and it's uh, it's great. The last time we had to do this remotely, now we're both here on uh, the University of Victoria campus. Valentine's Day is always entertaining. Um, I have to confess that often on February 14th, I'm one of those guys who will head downtown just to keep an eye on other dates that are just going catastrophically wrong. You know, uh, you know what I mean? The dates that just are doomed to fail. Uh, <laughs> And let me tell you the things I've seen. Like last week, I actually witnessed a couple come into a place. One guy ordered some sort of like high rolling martini with smoke coming out of it. And she ordered a cup of tea. Mm. You know, that's not going to last. Right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we're not here today to go into the everyday horrors of dating and Valentine's Day, which I'm sure we could. We could probably do a whole other podcast series on that. But instead, we're talking about the political economy of it all. And I guess... I guess why everything is awful. Uh, so today, it is a sea of heartbreak on GDP, and let's start off with the big ticket stuff, diamonds. I looked this up, and the going suggestion was that a diamond engagement ring, according to De Beers, should be equivalent of two months' salary. Now, the average salary in Canada is about $51,000. For men? For men, and that is a, roughly going to equate into an $8,000 ring. Now, is that the only problem with diamonds, or are there more? Depends if you think that's a problem or not. <laughs> ah. <laughs> uh, so, well, we could start with that, actually. Let's with do the, that. Uh, the two-month salary sort of thing. De Beers started that decades ago in one of their first marketing campaigns around a diamond is forever. And so the point of that is to do a couple of things. One is that... Um, it places value on a diamond. So what's $8,000 when a diamond is forever? Right. right. I can still so, hear the little jingle on TV. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So it seems like a small investment, right, in declaring your forever love through this particular um, commodity. Unlike chocolate and flowers, right, which are temporary. Um, very temporary. Yes. Very temporary um, declarations. Um, the other thing that it does is it artificially inflates the cost of diamonds, right? right. So um, most consumers are unaware of the fact that diamonds are extremely plentiful in the world. There's tons of them. They're everywhere. Really? And they're actually not rare. 
right? There are other gemstones that are more rare than diamonds, but um, because De Beers is at the very beginning of the diamond industry and has the monopoly up until quite recently, but still has a pretty big hold on the industry, it was able to control the supply of diamonds on the world market, right? right? Which so it does those kinds of fundamentally two things. It justifies like having this artificially inflated price for a diamond, um, and then also kind of signifies you know your investment in love, right, with the diamond for that kind of two month salary uh, thing. They did try early on to market diamonds um, as part of like wedding bands or engagement rings for men, like um, way back in the day, but it never really caught on. Is there a reason for that? Why well, it didn't catch I on? mean, at the time, right, most women weren't working. You know, there were a lot of stay at home mm-hmm. moms if they were targeting North America and Europe, which is what from primarily where they were targeting. Um, and um, a lot of couples or heterosexual couples were still very bound up in traditional gender roles and patriarchal family structures, which didn't really allow for that kind of idea that men should wear engagement rings or have diamonds in there. It's seen as a purely kind of feminine or feminized right. um, product or the way to wear jewelry. Interestingly enough, though, before the rise of the engagement ring, most couples in Europe and North America marked their engagement through a family heirloom. So it could be any kind of piece of jewelry. It was not a diamond ring, often brooches or earrings or a special pendant. um, Something that was passed down from grandmothers and mothers in the past. Yes, absolutely. So, and it actually represented in some ways the joining of families, right, through that particular... Which kind of makes um, sense. I mean, legally, if there's going to be a, Mm -hmm. a marriage, it is... Very much that it's 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 economic, it's social, it's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So remind me again, when did engagement rings become a thing? When did when did this? Oh on? yeah, I'm terrible with dates, <laughs> and I'm probably going to say one that's probably not quite. But, but does it feel like it would be post World War One or yeah, pre- World War One? Yeah, that's what mm-hmm. I'm thinking too. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So so you've got these really plentiful, almost artificially expensive. I'm hearing you right rocks that one or two corporations are kind of keeping in, in task with. And these were given from the men to the women. So what does that say right there about the gender dynamics that go with that? Oh, um, well, um, this is the way that I ruin weddings for all of my students. Is <laughs> Oh, I can't wait for this. <laughs> um, it actually signifies, it's all wrapped up in the idea of property transfer, right? right. That when... Um, it signifies that you, an engagement ring, is that you are the property of this particular male landowner, at least early in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even for poor and labor classes, working classes, it had the same significance, right? Even if they weren't property owners, that women became the property of their husbands and the household. Um, the tradition of dads walking um, women down the aisle, brides That's down the right. aisle, and giving away is a property transfer um, that <coughs> oh you go from God. the dad to the husband, right? And this is before women were considered to be citizens, you know, full-fledged citizens in either Europe or North America. And so they were considered to be property of the male head of the household. Right, and like there were most, like the most countries still did, even in the global north, like Switzerland, where women still didn't even have the right to vote. Right, right? exactly. And only in North America was this becoming a, a new thing. And was there not, there was a lot of pressure at the time for you know women to vote the same way as her husband. I remember yes. there were campaigns about that that yes. were... Uh, Historically, famous. yes, and in some yeah. places in the United States, uh, women could not vote unless they took their husband's last name. Oh, uh, also kind of solidifying that idea of the household and the unified um, household. 
Okay, I gotcha. All right. So now this is what happens when the rings are on the fingers and the diamonds are in play here and we see this. Is there something to be said about the production of diamonds and why we should be concerned with that? Okay. Um, well, I don't think it's any secret that diamond mining um, takes place in some of the poorest places in the world, um, especially in South Africa where the original Kimberley mines were at first... Uh, I say this in quotes, discovered, yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. um, as a function of colonization um, and the spread of global capitalism and corporatization. Um, and that's where De Beers got its start, quite frankly. And, um, and so one of the concerns of it is that it's um, very dangerous work. It is um, very um, environmentally hazardous work. It's poorly paid. Um, in many sectors, poorly regulated uh, in many countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think most people are familiar with the concept of lead diamonds, right? Yes. That diamonds that had been um, exchanged or sold on various markets, right, to fund uh, militarized conflicts in a variety of places globally, mm-hmm. not just in some of the most obvious places. But, yeah. um, but so there's not a lot to recommend right in terms of diamonds in that sense at least traditional diamond mining um and what also people are unaware of is that it is a heavily male dominated industry there's no question about that it's particularly violent industry Mm -hmm. um and then women are incorporated in the industry in a variety of ways either as kind of caretakers around mines right there's a high level of gender-based violence um, sex work, a variety of yep. things happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, also, women are predominantly involved in artisanal diamond mining, which is basically where you collect loose diamonds on the ground, right? And it's very labor intensive. There's absolutely no regulation of it whatsoever anywhere. It's super dangerous. Right? Yeah. It's dangerous. It's very underpaid. Um, and it's environmentally hazardous depending on um, where you are. Um, some of the alternatives to it now are being lab grown diamonds right so and people question well are they authentic because they're not coming from the earth and they haven't come from that um, process and elsewhere particularly in Canada right the Canadian diamond uh, industry here has heavily marketed itself as an alternative right to diamonds being uh, mined in developing countries Um, right the Canadian diamond mining industry is not without its own issues no there's some big issues there I mean Mm -hmm. one of the things that Anytime that a mine gets set up anywhere in the world, usually yeah. the promise from the person who's doing the investment is that this is going to bring widespread economic growth to all the communities around. But really, in many cases, especially with the diamonds, it's actually a very limited impact. But you actually see that yeah. economic growth locally. So there's three major mines in Canada, all up in the territories. And, you know, there's been some wealth generated there. But really, in terms of that sort of transformative promised development for northern Canada that no. it's far far off. it has not materialized right and it's you know of course mostly on um, indigenous lands mm-hmm. um, in some places it's actually exacerbated already impoverished conditions particularly in places like Atalaska which most Canadians yep. are familiar with yep. um, and um, and so and, and in some ways it's also led to some of the things we've seen elsewhere in the world increased gender-based violence in those communities um, environmental degradation, you know, a whole bunch of things. So, right. um, you know, and, and if you look at Canadian diamond industry uh, advertisements, right, it's always about 
like they try to present it as very clean, like yes. the, the opposite of blood diamonds. It's always snow and crisp, clean air, and you know all of these things. But in reality, they face many of the same issues as what's happening elsewhere. Exactly. The one of the things that the the Canadian industries are are known for is the scrutiny they put the workers under for for theft mm-hmm. reasons. I mean, it's it's almost a pretty degrading experience just to go to work every day. Uh, to really check all the ins and outs to make sure that no diamonds have been lifted out of there. And that said, the working conditions back in South Africa are, as you said, they are notorious. And if anyone's interested in doing research on this, it just takes a quick scan through any of the industry, uh, call them newspapers or industry reports that, that look at the mining industry where the concessions and the contracts are coming out. But some of the mines in the Kimberley area in South Africa, these are old mines. They're going back almost 200 years. Yeah. The maintenance and the safety just hasn't caught up. And there's fatalities weekly. Mm-hmm. And and it's almost done with sort of this aloof uh, behavior to say, well, you take your chance. Uh, because if, you know, you get this job and you don't make it, someone else will come replace you. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. you know, that's how coal mining operated in the 19th century in England. So this is really part and parcel of the industry to the day. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so now that we've ruined that, <laughs> can we talk about what's wrong with chocolate uh, beyond it just being poisonous to dogs? I mean, most people tend to, to love chocolate unless you've got a, you know, an allergy issue. So what's wrong with chocolate? Yeah, chocolate. Mm. Where do you start with chocolate, right? I mean, chocolate is so caught up in our cultural imagination in so many ways and our daily lives in ways that diamonds are not, right? Mm-hmm. That we have um, associated, have long associated it with love, um, as an aphrodisiac, mm-hmm. as having mystical powers, as, you know, having all kinds of things, right? And has chocolate's probably the most, in my view, romanticized and exoticized commodity that we have, right? Um, because of its origins um, in Aztec and Mayan culture mm-hmm. and the way that that's been appropriated in many spaces um, globally. And it was a huge part, right, of the, the Spanish colonial trade, right, who mm-hmm. brought it to Europe. And so I think there is a way in which that chocolate represents a multitude of things that... Um, have now become quite accessible and common and normalized in our in our culture. Um, so, but chocolate, <laughs> um, despite its origins in Central America, um, the majority of the world's chocolate be- uh, chocolate pods and beans are grown in two countries, in Ghana and Ivory Coast, hmm. and so production has shifted there. And it is a massive, massive industry um, in both of those countries um, that are pretty much monocrop countries because of those um, those industries. They estimate about five million people are involved wow, in incredible. some way. Yeah. Okay? It's huge. It's huge. It's a lot of people. Um, it's also just a massive industry. It is if you took chocolate as an economy, it is a larger, a bigger economy than 130 countries in the world. Okay, so it's a massive, massive industry. And yet the countries you just named, Ghana and uh, Cote d'Ivoire, for such an industry, the development impacts just don't seem to be hitting the ground. And it's not there because of the way the supply chain works. Um, It's largely largely unregulated and kind of a black market up until the point that it leaves and is shipped 
mm-hmm. right, to Belgium or elsewhere where it's going to be processed in a factory. But the growth part of it, how it gets transported it, who buys warehouses and stores it, you know, everybody is taking their, their piece of that. Um, and in Ivory Coast, the government sets the price for a kilo of cocoa beans. So it doesn't actually allow the market to determine the true price of um, cocoa beans. So that plays into it mm-hmm. um, as well. And so there's a way in which that the farmer, honestly, is like the person you know growing them and tending them, cultivating, um, is the least and paid person right in the chain, just like diamonds. Yeah. Um, but it has not brought other expected benefits uh, in ways that people would think it did, given the massive size of the industry. So a lot, of, a lot of comments to this, the chocolate industry, it can also be applied to the coffee industry where you have... Absolutely. You There's know, a lot of parallels there. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and we saw that sometimes the free, um, as an antithesis of the free trade, there was fair trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems some of the coffee roasters that were certified fair trade were getting into chocolate. Mm-hmm. There's some challenges... So how that model has worked? Mm-hmm. Has there been any kick up over fair trade chocolate that you see has been successful in any way? Um, there's actually a few. Um, if you go into any grocery store in Canada, you'll see quite a few mm-hmm. um, fair trade um, and organic even chocolate bars and. Uh, one of them comes out of a women's cooperative in Ghana. And so this is where, you know, where chocolate, the beans are sourced, like everybody you can yeah. trace back everything. They have labor standards, they have a collective governance structure, um, and so forth and so on. And they seem to have been able to globalize their product in a way that other fair trade chocolate from those countries has not been able to. Right, right. And the other model you see is for big chocolate companies like Cadbury and Green and Blacks and so forth to produce their own organic fair trade, right? Yes. Chocolate. So there's actually two competitors in that market. That's right. I remember um, seeing in the UK that there's like the, the Kit Kats there are now mm-hmm. advertising that they're certified eco green or they're, mm-hmm. they're making some sort of a contribution to the mm-hmm. communities that they're getting their chocolate out mm-hmm. of. Very interesting. Yeah, so there's kind of two models that are occurring there, and I think the big, of course, the big chocolate companies have much more of a, a market fight mm-hmm. for them. It's all, it's very telling that you know just the the simple geographic economy of this that you've got this change of where the the cocoa beans are grown into West Africa, mm-hmm. and yet the big chocolate manufacturers, none of them are in Africa. They're all Europe-based. It's, it's Right. Right, except for Hershey's over over in the right. States. And they, they do have chocolate factories in Ghana and elsewhere um, on the African continent, but they don't have nearly the production mm-hmm. um, that um, that they have in Europe and they've established in Europe over the last you know centuries. There's an excellent book um, that looks at, for example, in the UK when uh, working class women worked in those chocolate factories producing Cadbury and um, and so forth and so on, right? So it's always the, the growing and the production of chocolate have always been separated pretty mm-hmm. much, mm-hmm. right? Like with diamonds, that's a little bit different. I mean, they get shipped to India to get polished and cut, right? And right. then they kind of make their way in jewelry all over the world, right? But right. here, this is a very separate um, right. Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There's another thing with the, just the, the the essence of chocolate itself. Like you mentioned that, yes, it began in, in Mexico and in, in Aztec and Maya mm-hmm. uh, lands there. And to actually have a cup of chocolate in the highlands in Guatemala, which I can say that I've done, 
there's nothing sweet within a mile of it. It's like a meal replacement, you know, yes. in that way. Yes. Mm-hmm. And originally that sort of, that conversion of chocolate to a drink form was something that actually was popularized at the end of the 19th century with a lot of temperance movements. Mm-hmm. So it was something that the Salvation Army and Cadbury's actually worked together with mm-hmm. in the UK so that factory workers uh, wouldn't be going and hitting the pubs to get their, their pints, you know, the stouts, the... The, the, the heavy bitters and these sorts of things were kind of substitute meal replacements for the poor. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of advocacy to try to get more people drinking hot chocolate. as That's a, true. But, you know, in between that, like, um, you know, when you look at Mayan Aztec culture that was often drank by royalty uh-huh. um, within those cultures and right. sweetened with honey, um, the Spanish introduced um, adding sugar to it. So there's a whole other commodity that and we could that's, link through. That's where I was getting to. That's where yeah. things go off and the rails. It was also through Spanish royalty as well. And for a long time in Europe, it was mostly upper class people who had access to things like chocolate or hot chocolate as a drink. It was seen as an elite sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And now we see it as like a kid's you know, drink that everybody has. Oh, yeah. Um, access to. But it also got heavily militarized, and that was part of the aspect, too, about making it more accessible to common folks, working folk, is that um, the British Army, as well as the Canadian um, Armed Forces, used it as part of their rations for um, military folks as, not meal replacement, but like the equivalent of what we would consider to be a protein bar now, right? For That's right. For energy, for sustenance. Yeah, um, that's part of the K-rations. Yeah, yeah basically. Yeah. And oh, so man. there was a way in which it also became militarized um, as a way to kind of, you know, foster that out through ordinary folks. Interesting. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that the point when the sugar got introduced to chocolate, that's right. when, and almost, you know, that's when the, the health impact started to show up. Like there's a, if you consume too much chocolate, you you know get a higher risk of kidney stones, and then of course type two diabetes can be another right. issue from that as well. So right. okay, we've we've punished chocolate. <laughs> uh, flowers, what did they do wrong? <laughs> I know, poor flowers. They're so innocent. They're so innocent. Um, you know, flowers are, um, they're marketed quite differently, too, in some ways. And I guess that's the way our relationship to flowers is more complex because we see them in nature every day. Like, mm-hmm. we're pretty disassociated from, like, most North Americans have never seen a cocoa pod. No. Right? Like, wouldn't know if they fell over one, <laughs> right? And most Amer- you know, most people have never seen an uncut, unpolished diamond. They wouldn't know what it looked like. You know, that, yeah. that kind of thing, right? But yeah. flowers we interact with every day uh, for the most part in nature in some way. And so we have a different relationship to flowers, I think, on some level, right? And, um, you know, both chocolate and flowers are marketed heavily to women as parts of their own self-care, Right, not just like romance between partners, but also uh, yeah. you know loving yourself. Right, they have a more expansive notion mm-hmm. of how chocolate and flowers represent different kinds of aspects of love, like familial love and self love, and you know romantic love, friendship for mm-hmm. sure. Um, you know, um, De Beers has tried for a long time to do the same thing for women with the right hand ring. You know, with um, diamonds like. Well, stop waiting for a man to buy you a diamond. Just buy one yourself, right? Like, kind of thing. I mean, it's relentlessly heterosexual, right, yeah. also. Um, less so with chocolate and flowers if you sure. start looking at modern advertising. Um, so, you know, flowers, unlike chocolate uh, production, cocoa bean production and diamond, uh, is a heavily female-dominated industry, right? The other two, because of the physical labor demands of it, 
um, are very male dominated. Mm-hmm. Um, and flowers, um, they're mostly produced in uh, Latin America, but other countries like Kenya mm-hmm. are quick, quickly gaining yep. <laughs> uh, rapid ascendance. So we may see parallels again about you know how cocoa production shifted. We may eventually see the end of the flower production industry or at least the end of the dominance of that in um, Latin America over the next couple of decades. I wouldn't be surprised, uh, particularly because it's much easier to ship from right, Africa to Europe, right? So um, we get most of our flowers in North America from right South America. So. Yes. Um, so it just depends on that supply and demand uh, question. And that and that supply mm-hmm. side is pretty intensive. So mm-hmm. you've got yeah. I've seen I've seen some of the flower farms in, yeah. in Ecuador, and these are kind of mass uh, monoculture areas that it's just nothing but tulips, nothing but roses, right. and they some of these flowers require shade as well. Right. And the pesticides that get loaded onto them mm-hmm. are pretty extensive. And if they are in a covered environment, they do not aerate. Right. And then the people who are there grooming and working with them, um, that poses a real risk, uh, especially if they have, you know, lacking protective gloves. Right. Um, so now you've got health issues with the workers. And then these things have to get cut, chopped, refrigerated, mm-hmm. and then sent up to up to North American markets, so that's mm-hmm. a lot of carbon, not just in terms of, of the flight itself, but keeping right. the refrigerated temperature at a right. certain point. Um, that's an enormous cost. It's huge. That comes into it. It's huge, and um, and it's uh, it's a, it's interesting to think about flowers on the retail chain too, right? Because um, you know how highly gendered it is like the reason that women are sought as laborers in the flower industry is the same reason they're sought for like electronics industry and other assembly line work is that they allegedly have you know nimbler fingers more gentle touch so they're not going to like bruise everything right. you know, like still highly gendered in the way that men's and body men's and women's bodies are understood in relation to physical labor mm-hmm. um, and but the other side of it is when you think about how flowers are retailed on the other end, right? That's predominantly highly gendered as well. It's like mostly women that work in flower shops or do that work in flower sections in grocery stores, right? It's part-time precarious labor. It's the same kind of, like it's connected by the same sorts of gendered understandings of labor right? Mm-hmm. in the flower industry, whether you're producing or you're selling, right? Um, wow. Yeah. And, and I think with all these industries, there are, you know, there's a lot of economic connection between you know we talked about the, the the supply side the getting things to market but then the retail side in North America is is quite huge there's a there's a lot of retail space that's committed to those three products and they Absolutely. have they have their boom seasons and they have their mm-hmm. their quiet times and you know more holidays are made up throughout the year to ensure <laughs> the, the purchase of all three in some way mm-hmm. so these are these are things so if people were to find the moral foundations of Diamonds, chocolate, and flowers to be problematic. Should they purchase other things on Valentine's Day or celebrate the day in a different way? <laughs> I think that's for people to decide themselves. I think when you start going down the um, love commodity chain analysis, oh for boy, 
any almost any product, which is what I have my students do as part of their projects in the course. You the start love finding. commodity chain analysis. <laughs> yeah, All that's right. what I call it, tongue in cheek. <laughs> um, you start finding like there's lots of similar you know aspects of it. I mean, one of the reasons I started the course was to teach them about trade and to teach them about labor and you know in ways that affect their everyday lives and how they they interact with products and. Um, but also to teach them how to do that kind of commodity chain um, analysis. And so I think you start going down that rabbit hole, it's like it's kind of hard to find anything, truthfully, that you'd feel like okay about. And it, it is because we're so deliberately cut off from mm-hmm. um, producing, you know, from the producers that most of the products we use every day in our society, whether they're related to love industry um, Technology. Or not. I mean, yeah. there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of that root production if it's in Africa if it's in South America if it's in Asia mm-hmm. uh, if it's factories or it's agricultural work where you're exactly right the idea mm-hmm. is to make sure that when that marketed product comes off the shelf that the history of how it got there mm-hmm. isn't as transparent right exactly and even with the case of buying um, local flowers I think it would really depend on where you were located in North America mm-hmm. uh, because we know a lot of migrant labor right, is involved yeah. in that that source of flower production um, and even with high-end chocolate artisanal shops here in Victoria or elsewhere, right? Those cocoa beans are still coming from the same place. They're not coming from some, you know, morally land of unambiguous place, yes. right? Yeah. As much as we'd like to think that. So, um, so there's there's different ways in which, you know, that that equation plays out. Fantastic, Laura Parisi. <laughs> thank you very much for uh, joining us today on GDP and ruining Valentine's Day for us. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Um, I, I certainly look forward to uh, you know taking on the next Hallmark holiday maybe on the road. I know St. Patrick's Day is coming up, so we can have a we can have a go at that if we've got time. Okay, sounds but, good. Uh, but no, honestly, congratulations on uh, on offering this course. The popularity of it is uh, certainly well known, and it's uh, it's a great discussion to have. So thanks so much okay. for coming in. All right, thank you.